Well, good morning. Uh, I have to stop first and say that, um, great job. Great job, guys. We, uh, um, online doesn't do justice what these guys just did. That was a great job. And uh, um, so uh, that was a great, worshipful experience. And uh, my name is Brian Cauley, and uh, um, we're so excited to be here. Uh, my wife, Mandy, is here on the front row, Annalise and Brinley as well. Probably the only time they ever sit on the front row. Um, but, uh, uh, but they're up here with me today. And we've just had a great weekend. We want to say thank you to the church and to the, the search committee um, for, for just the hospitality this weekend and getting to meet everybody yesterday. If we didn't get to meet you, um, we look forward to meeting you and becoming part of the family here in Mason. Um, it is, uh, when, we, when we first started talking about Mason, we would tell people back, we live in Taylor right now, and we tell people in Taylor, and, and we have a connection to a community uh, of Thrall, and we talk to them, and everybody's like, oh, Mason's where you want to go. Mason's where you want to go. And we're like, well, I don't know about that. And then we came here, and, and it's been great. So thank you for having us this weekend, um, and uh, we're really excited. And, and I have to say this also, um, it's very humbling. When um, Eddie uh, told me that the search committee wanted to bring us in view of a call. It's probably the most humbling moment in my life um, that, a, that a team of, of people who are believers see me qualified to lead a church. And for the reception that I've gotten this weekend from you is very humbling as well. And so I thank you for that. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's an honor to be here today. And hopefully um, God will share us some great truth this morning. So uh, I'm, I'm excited. I want to start with a quote this morning. It says, um, it's from J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer is one of my favorite authors ever. And, uh, uh, but he wrote, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now? There will always be an answer. And he writes that in context of a t- going through tough times. And if you spent any time watching the news lately, then you know our world is going through a pretty crazy, tough time right now. If you're on social media, you know we're going through a crazy, tough time right now. Just being alive, you know that it's a crazy, tough time in our world right now. And uh, and just when you think you can't get any worse, just when 2020 ends and you think we're done, 2021 happens. And I saw this morning on Facebook as I was going through it, and to all you who are on Facebook, we're glad you're joining us today um, as well, that, think about this, 2022 is actually 2020 again. And think about that for a second, it'll hit some of y'all that, you know, when it's 2022, we're repeating it again. Um, took me a second, I had to look at it and be like, what? That doesn't make sense. But, um, so... I say all that because the world is crazy, it's rough, all sorts of stuff is going on, stuff out of left field that's so hard to fathom in our minds that it's actually occurring is actually occurring to the point that I don't even want to watch the news anymore because I don't want to be shocked and I, and I don't get shocked very often. It's a scary time for us to be alive and it's a time that many people in our world think that the world is about to end and they might be right. They might be wrong. We don't know because scripture tells us that no one knows the hour or the time that Jesus is going to return again. But we do know that Jesus is going to return again. And so because of that, I want to start today with two truths that I'm more convinced of every day. Two super important truths that I want you to take with you as we leave today. The first one is this. The world needs God and the salvation that God offers more. I don't want to say more and more because we've always needed the salvation that God offers. Ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3, 
the world has needed that salvation. But the world needs God and the salvation it offers. We need that redemption. We've lived a sinful, broken life. We live in a fallen world. And only God can bring that salvation and redemption. The second truth that I want to share with you before we start today is the world needs the church to be the bride of Christ more than ever before. The world needs the church to be the bride of Christ more than ever before. The church needs to be the church. We live in a, in a world that's a, we, we live in a product of broken, fallen people, in a world that's hurting, and a world that people need to be healed. And the church is where we can find that. And the church needs to be the force that brings that healing that only Jesus can provide to families, to communities, and to the world. The church is the messenger of that healing. And so when we take those two truths of the world needs God and the salvation that he offers, and the world needs the church to be the bride of Christ more than ever before, we get a challenge to go and do that. But I think the difficult part of being the church, of being the bride of Christ that, that the world needs, is not that we don't know what the church is, because we can easily look in the book of Acts and see what the church was designed to be and how the church was designed to act and, how, and, and read all through the New Testament on, on, on how to handle different issues in the church. And it's easy for us as believers to know what a Christian is supposed to look like. Matthew 23, 37 through 39 tells us what a Christian is supposed to look like. Jesus says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then he follows that up and says, second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So a Christian is supposed to love God and love people. That's very simple for us to know. It's very simple. It's laid right out there in front of us. But how do we actually do that? How do we actually love God and how do we love people in a world that it seems like every time we bring up the name God or the name Jesus, the opposition gets fiercer and fiercer. How do we do that? Well, fortunately, the Apostle Paul has given us several different instructions in Scripture that takes us through this and helps us strengthen ourselves in order to counteract the world we live in. He lays things out throughout the New Testament that help us know how to handle different situations. And it's in this scripture we're going to look at this morning, 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4, that Paul gives us um, a warning, he gives us a solution, and then he gives us a product, a result of what that living that solution looks like. And I love this passage because it's so relevant to what's going on in our lives today, even though it was written thousands of years ago. So if you'll pray with me, then we'll dive into the word and see what it says. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. We had a great time of worship this morning, Lord, and I just um, felt your presence. And I just pray that you would continue to be here this morning. You would bless this church family and that you would uh, teach us through your word how we can make an impact, not just in our, in our families and in our communities, but to the world as a whole, and that we can begin to see change from the inside out. We love you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. 
It's one of my favorite things about Scripture. One of the things I just love when I study Scripture is that we can look at the context of when it was written and see that it's talking about something, but then we can very easily take that and put it into the context of our world today and apply it to our lives that are going on today. And this passage actually is pretty simple to do that. If you look at 2 Timothy 3, you're going to find an example of what I'm talking about. Paul is writing in the context of the culture that Timothy was experiencing, but yet we could read it and be like, man, that's happening right now. I see everything he's saying there right now. So I'm going to start with verses 1 through 9. It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. I think you can find some people that are like that today, right? (laughs) He continues, avoid such people. And then he goes on in verse 5, or verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So Paul's letter to Timothy here is traditionally held as the final letter of Paul recorded in the Bible. He wrote this um, towards the end of his life. He recognizes that his time on earth is coming to a close And he wants to give Timothy some important instructions as he closes his ministry with him and to him. Because Paul didn't just minister with Timothy, he ministered to Timothy. And he showed him the way to begin. So he begins this portion of the letter by referencing the decline of society and movement away from God. Look again at uh, verse 1. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Paul's being clear here that there's going to be difficulties. And he uses the term last days. And you're going to hear many people, I said this earlier, that many people think we're in the last days. And we very well could be. In fact, we are. Because many scholars believe that when Jesus ascended, the last days began. So we've been in the last days for a couple thousand years as we're headed to when he returns again. We've always been in the last days that we've been alive. But there is a time that we're moving farther, closer and closer to Jesus returning. And that very well may be true that the end is near. Paul writes this around the time of 65 to 68 AD. So he's talking about the last days in the first century. And yet when I read that, I see the last two weeks of the United States in that passage. So two quick points, or I gave you one of them, but the second one, um, the first point was that many scholars believe that the term last days references to that time period between the ascension and him returning for the second time. The second point that I want to make clear, as we live in a world that's full of danger and evil, is that every generation has had its own axis of evil. 
from Nero to Vlad the Impaler, Ivan the Terrible to Hitler and Mussolini, to the regimes of Saddam Hussein and Kim Jong-il, godlessness has been rampant throughout history. And I I remember when 9-11 happened, I was a student at Texas Tech, and that was the seminal moment in my life that something big happened that I remember exactly where I was and everything. And I remember sitting there for a couple days as as the the news reports came in and rumors were flying that different things were going to happen and nobody really knew what was going on. And I remember sitting there going, is the world ending? Is this it? I'm not even married yet. And I went to a, a, a Bible study at First Baptist Lubbock on a Thursday night. And a guy named John Randalls was speaking. And he shared that very point, that every generation has had its own axis of evil. That was one of the most calming statements I've ever heard, to recognize that that wasn't it. But the battle's still raging on, but God's ultimately going to win the war. But the people I mentioned here are all politicians. They're all in governmental leadership. But godlessness is not just found in political leadership. Godlessness is found everywhere we turn. It permeates the fabric of our being because we live in a fallen, broken world. We have a sinful nature that makes us prone to godlessness. Paul digs deeper here as we continue through chapter 3. He, in verse 2, he starts and he begins to list over 18 different characteristics of godlessness. And I bet if you were to look at those characteristics and really analyze your life, you might find a couple of them that you struggle with. I know I do. It's very, very, like this list is very soul-searching for me. And I don't believe that he, it is by accident that if you look at the beginning of this list of those 18 plus, is he starts with, for people will be lovers of self. He starts with loving yourself, and it ends with not being lovers of God. He's saying godlessness begins with being prideful and arrogant and it ends with denying the power of God with a whole lot of unappealing, world-destroying characteristics in between. I once had the opportunity to lead a uh, small group of, uh, of guys that were made up of juniors and seniors in high school. And we met um, on a weekly basis uh, at, at a Brahms in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We'd go and, and sit and have ice cream, and then we would, we would study. And, and uh, we'd go through different studies. But one of the studies that we did was on the seven deadly sins. And it was an eye-opening study for me um, that I loved because these young men, these, these 17- and 18-year-old men, were really grappling for the first time in their lives with the sin that was in their life. Really getting an understanding of what that sin was and how it led to other things. And, I, and, and it, was, it was eye-opening for me as well to deal with that, to, to walk through that with them and to, to look at those things. But out of this study, these guys, this group of young men, found this great insight. And that insight was that the basis of almost every sin in our life, and Paul mentions it because he starts with it here, is pride. If you look at the sin that you deal with in your life, I bet there's some pride that's leading you there. And if you're still dealing with that sin, it's probably pride that's keeping you from dealing with that sin, keeping you from attacking it. Our pride destroys our witness to the world. Because when we love ourselves, when loving ourselves comes first, we fail to love God and loving our neighbors. 
Romans 1.25 states that. It says they traded the truth for a lie and began to worship the creature, not the creator. The, fried, the, the phrase pride comes before the fall has never been truer. And unfortunately, this pride has invaded our churches today and our church leadership today. Media reports are rife with stories of celebrity pastors falling. Uh, for me, I, I, some things I'm tuned into, it's, it doesn't seem like a week goes by that not another one um, is in the news. And it's not just the megachurch pastors. They're just the ones that make the headlines because the news like to report on the, on the big ones. And, and the difference that I'm seeing nowadays is, is used to when that happened and when it, when it made the news is it was usually moral failure that caused that. But now it's not. Now what we're seeing, what a lot of what we're seeing is an increase of pastors being removed from ministry and from service due to allegations and investigations of spiritual abuse and abuse of power. Their pride is welling up inside them and they're like, I'm the leader of this church, this organization, and I'm better than that. I don't have to follow the rules that the people that I talk to do. And we're starting to see that in just the last four to five months. I know of three high profile situations that the church has been historically damaged because their pastor got prideful and arrogant and thought they were above everything. But remember how I talked about putting this into the context of what it was written, when it was written? Look at verses 5 through 9. As I talk about churches today that are falling victim to pastors that are full of pride and arrogance, Paul talks about it here in verses 5 through 9. It says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, denying the power of God in their life, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Even back then, False teachers were getting into the relationships of the people. They were leading them astray. In fact, you look throughout the New Testament, and that's the majority of what Paul writes about, is beware of what they are saying. Beware of them taking you away from the scripture that God has given us. False religious leaders take advantage of people who have problems and promise a quick and easy solution. They worm their way in and they soon control people's lives. They acquire people's loyalty, money, and service. The term gaslighting has become very popular in today's language. And uh, if you don't know what gaslighting means, I've got the definition here. It says gaslighting is when one manipulates someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. Think about that. When one manipulates someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. Has that ever happened to you? I know it's happened to me. It's when someone uses mind games to begin to control someone else by using a weakness that they have shared with that person against them. They start to twist it. They start to turn it. They start to make that person question themselves. And as sickening as it is to hear, this happens more and more in our churches every day. And Paul is giving us a warning that this happened then and it's going to happen. 
And we need to be careful. We know about it more and more today because we have the internet and social media and people are bringing it to light and they're bringing out this abuse. And the sad part is, is that in some cases it is so dangerous and so well rehearsed and so strong that it goes to an extreme that takes it from one person gaslighting another to the person being gaslighted beginning to gaslight themselves. And they begin to question themselves. And I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was several people that were discussing this very topic of spiritual abuse in the church and how can you overcome it and how can you handle it. And, uh, and they were discussing, um, one of the guests that was on the podcast, they were discussing a very high-profile church that this, um, this, this lady had been a part of. She'd been a part of the beginnings of it and, and walking through it. And, uh, and she offered some insight into her experience. Her name is Janice Legata, and look at what she says. She says, if you gaslight someone, they will serve for a day. And she means you can manipulate someone into doing what you want for a short time. But if you teach them to gaslight themselves, they'll serve forever. Meaning they'll become a, a slave to you. Because you've made them question everything they want. And that's where it becomes this abuse of power. That's where they begin to lead people astray. That's where they creep into households, as Paul says, and capture weak women burdened with sins and lead them astray by various passions. They begin to work you over mentally to where they control you. What this boils down to is using our pride and arrogance to control someone to do what we want them to do. That's not honoring God, and it's not loving our neighbor. It's not being the bride of Christ that the church is called to be. So what do we do? Because that's a very ominous warning that Paul's giving us. What do we do? How do we take it? How do we survive this godlessness? And how do we recognize it seeping into our lives so that we can live lives that honor God rather than run towards godlessness? What do we do with that? Well, Paul gives us two steps that prove beneficial in fighting this battle. If we go into verses uh, 10 through 12, we find the first step. And look what it says. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from all them, the Lord rescued me. Verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul, the first step that Paul says in fighting this, the first step in, in, in taking a step against this corruption is to follow those who are true. Follow those who live godly lives. Find someone to mentor you. And Paul here leans on his own testimony to show Timothy an example of how to live a godly life. Paul and Timothy lived life together so Timothy would have known that what Paul is saying is true. Did you catch that? Paul and Timothy spent a lot of time together. So when Paul here lists the things in verses 10 that he says that he has lived, Timothy knows they're true because they were together. Paul says to follow someone who's transparent, that doesn't hide things. Follow someone who teaches true doctrine. Follow someone that practices what they preach. Follow someone that exists to glorify God. And finally, follow someone who's willing to suffer for God. 
When you find that person, you find someone who's godly. Someone that's willing to do all those things. And they might do some of them better because we're not perfect. We're all human. But that's the type of person that you want to pour into your life. That's the type of person that we want to surround ourselves with. His example of himself to Timothy is an instruction for us to find a godly person to mentor us. Find someone whose life exudes godliness. Find someone in the church who's willing to do life together with you so that you together can model Christ to the world. And here's the big thing. And scripture says, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. Maybe it's not just one person. Maybe it's a small group of people, a small group of believers that you get together with and you study the scriptures together. You serve on mission together. You do life together. The key word there being together Doing life together. Because when you spend life together with other believers who are living these godly lives, you rub off on each other. Iron sharpens iron. You rub off on each other. You want to make an impact for God in the world? Do it together with other believers. Want to impact the next generation? Lead a small group of students that's not just studying the Bible, but you do life together. That's what it means to be a body of believers. So we're together. And I love that, that here it's already our faith family. Because that's what it is. A family. Together. We have our ups and downs, but we're together. And people see our togetherness. Paul then goes in after talking about finding someone to, to, to follow that is true. And gives us a second step. And for me, this is the most important. Verse 13 through 17, Paul tells us to continue in God's word. He says, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from what you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now I'm going to get a little transparent, and I'm going to open up a little insight into me, um, into one of my pet peeves. And, uh, um, and this is kind of a little awkward since I'm, I'm, I'm here trying to become your pastor, um, and it's a pet peeve about being a pastor. Um, and one of my pet peeves is when people say, It's true because the pastor said so. That's like saying everything on the internet is true because Abraham Lincoln told us it was true. I'm going to let you in on something. And somebody told me this yesterday and I loved it. They said, you're human. I was like, yes, I am. Pastors are human. We sin. We make mistakes. We get things wrong. We don't have it all together. And if that's true then why are people so insistent that because it was said from behind the pulpit, it's true? Jesus is the only human to ever be perfect. And therefore, even though it's my goal to be as biblically and doctrinally correct as I can be, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to get things wrong. We all are. I firmly believe that when we get to heaven... God's going to be like, you know that thing that you were so insistent on? 
You missed it. I really do. And he's going to say, but it doesn't matter. But if you don't know the scriptures, how can you survive in a world in false teaching? You need to fact check what is said with what the scriptures say. And if you find an anomaly, if you find something that doesn't line up with scripture, then follow the biblical approach and approach that person about it. There's going to be things that we disagree on, and there's going to be gray areas that can be interpreted many ways, but the big ones, the, the basic Christian doctrine, that's pretty clear what's true and what's not. And if you hear someone that's leading you away from that basic Christian doctrine, then you've got to be, you've got to confront them with it. But if you don't know the scriptures, then how do you know that it's taking you away from that basic Christian doctrine? So when you get into the word, um, that allows you to learn and to study. Because it's, it's funny because uh, if you watch anything political right now, they fact check every statement that a politician says. From like 40 years ago, they go back and fact check it. If you post on Facebook that today is your kid's birthday, there's a pretty good chance they're going to flag you for a misleading statement. Because they fact check everything. It's the world we live in. But wouldn't you like to know the one true word that will allow you to fact check Satan's lies as Satan begins to lead people astray? Let's reread verses 15 through 17 and look at what we learned about the scriptures. It says, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Remember, he's talking to Timothy here and he's saying, Timothy knew these scriptures from being a child, from being a kid. He's saying, from childhood you've been acquainted with these sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We learn five things about the scriptures in those three verses. The first thing we learn is that the scriptures are holy. They are holy. And because they're holy, they lead to salvation. The scriptures are true and they're dependable. They're profitable. They give us things in our life that we can apply and do good and become the person that God has created us to be. And then it equips us for service. Because the more and more you read the scriptures, the more and more you realize you just can't sit back and do nothing. But that God is equipping you to do something specific that he's called you to. Because each and every person that is a believer in Jesus Christ is called to carry out a mission in their own way. And as you get into the scriptures, as you grow closer to God through those scriptures, he will reveal that to you. I was a kid in the 80s. I kind of date myself a little bit. Um, I was a kid in the 80s, and one of the hot toys in the early 80s in um, a television show was a show called He-Man. Anybody remember He-Man? If you don't remember He-Man... He-Man was a prince who was given the ability to transform into He-Man with superhuman strength by the sorceress of Grayskull to fight the evil Skeletor. Such great names. And so when there was about to be a battle, when Skeletor was up to no good and He-Man needed to arise, he would, the prince would raise his sword to the sky and he would say, by the power of Grayskull... 
lightning would hit the sword, he would transform, and then he would scream. Does anybody know what he would scream? I have the power, right? He would scream, I have the power, and then he would go to battle to defeat the enemy. Why am I talking about He-Man? Well, we have our own sword. Ephesians 6.17 says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And it gives us the power to fight for the truth. So when we carry the word, when we study the word, and we know the word, then we can boldly proclaim, I have the power. I have the power to fight evil. I have the power to make a difference in this world. Look at verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It says, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. Isn't charge a powerful word? Saying, go forth, go do this. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. He's not saying pastors preach the word. He's saying, if you have this power, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. I heard someone call this one time a Starbucks Christianity. They pick and choose what part of Christianity they want. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Paul charges Timothy and us in chapter 4 to take this power and to teach it, to preach it. We are to preach boldly, courageously, clearly, and soundly, And I firmly believe more than ever that we have to make the scriptures relevant to the world around us and applicable to the lives that people are living today. I thank God every day that he chose me to live in this world at this time. Because I could have been born any time. But this is my time. I believe that my voice, my heart, and my life are for today's times, and I believe yours is too. We each have a ministry to fulfill. Each one of you that believes in Jesus has a ministry to fulfill. So that as Paul states here, as he goes in through verses 6 through through 8, finish the race, fight the good fight, and keep the faith. You have the power, so use it. But in order to have that faith and power, you have to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And... The scriptures tell us that God sent his son to die on the cross for my sin and for your sin. Not so that he could stay in death, but three days later he could rise again and defeat that death and resurrection. And when he does that, that gives us the hope of eternal life. And all you have to do is believe that and accept that. And here in a moment, I'm going to have a time of response. And we haven't talked through this, but John's going to come up hopefully. Um, and actually I might ask Eddie if he'll come up, if anybody wants to come down, if that's cool. Um, I'm just throwing this by the wind here, um, but we'll make it work. Um, but, uh, if you want to know more about this power that, that comes from these scriptures, we'll be here to talk to you and walk you through that and show you more about it and begin to, to, to show you why God sent his son 
and how his plan was enacted all throughout the scriptures and his plan is still working. And we can live in that hope. And even though our lives will be tough, as Paul says, we will suffer, we have the hope of eternity to keep us through. So I'm going to say a prayer and then we'll have this time of response and, and move on with our worship service. Father God, I just thank you for this word of wisdom, this word of instruction, this word of warning. I pray that if there's anyone in this room that does not know you personally, does not have a relationship with you, that you're speaking to their hearts right now, Lord, that they would have a desire to get to know you, to learn more about you, to believe that you are who you say you are, that you've given your son to this world so that he might die on a cross and defeat death with his resurrection for each one of us, Lord. We know your love is unconditional. We know your grace abounds all. And I pray for someone else in this room that is just ready to take that next step in their their faith journey, Lord, and to lead out courageously and boldly, Lord, that you would continue to grow that in their spirit, that they would say, I have the power and I'm gonna make a difference in, in the people who I interact with on a regular basis in their lives because you've saved me You've redeemed me, you've grown me, and you've equipped me to do the service that you've called me to. Father, I thank you for this family here at this church and just the heart that they have to serve you, Lord. And as we hopefully begin a journey together, Lord, I pray that you would bless us all. But more than anything, that you would give us the power to make your name known to make your name famous. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we respond.
of endless worth that no one could express how much you deserve the one we can and all I have is yours every single breath I'll bring you more I'll bring you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search. You search much deeper within. Through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you it's all about you Jesus I'm sorry Lord for the thing I've made it when it's all about you 